My name is Dan Min, and I serve as the pastor here at ACF, and for the last few weeks, uh, we've been working through this series called God Is, God Is, and uh, if you came in, and, and to my left, to your right, there was a, we've been having this panel of boards off, and it's to the back now, because we're going to have communion here in a little while, but uh, we would encourage you, uh, we've got a couple of more weeks left of the series, go stop by the board and, and just take a piece of chalk, write down who God is to you, and we'd love for you to worship, engage in this worship gathering in that way. But we've been working through this series called God Is, and we've been talking about different attributes of God, different aspects of who God is. And if you missed any of the previous messages, you can go onto our website and and catch up that way. But so far, we've looked at how God is holy. We, We started this series off by talking about how God is holy, which means God is like none other. That, that's literally what God is holy means, that the holiness of God is what sets him apart from anyone and anything in heaven or on earth. God is holy. Last week, if you were here, we talked about how God is sovereign. God is sovereign, a word that we don't use very often uh, in, in sort of regular conversation today. But, but when we say God is sovereign, what we're essentially saying is God is in control. Okay, He calls the shots, and there ain't nothing that can stop him. That's, that's what God is sovereign means. He's in control. He's calling the shots, and there's nothing that can stop the power and the sovereignty of God. Again, if you want to dig into that more, you can go onto our website and catch up. But we're going to continue on on that train of thought today, on that train of thought of God is. And today, I'd like to talk a little bit about how God is just. God is just. Just what? Just. God is just. I want to talk to you for the next few moments about the justice of God. And then we're going to go to the communion table here together and celebrate as we normally do at the start of every month. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6. If you have a smartphone or some device, you can take that out. If you need a Bible, raise a hand and uh, we'll have some folks coming around and they can get one of these Bibles to you. If you're following along with this in these hardback Bibles, we're on page 779. 779 is where we're looking here today. Micah chapter 6. Micah, uh, some of you may already know this, is an Old Testament prophet, and Micah lived in the similar time period as that of Isaiah. Uh, The book of Micah, uh, again, perhaps I'm telling you things that you already know, and so forgive me if that's the case, but the book of Micah falls under the category of what we know as minor prophets. Uh, the, The prophetic books of the Old Testament are broken up into two categories, major prophets and minor prophets. And now what makes them major versus minor is not so much the nature of the content as much as it is the length of each of the books. And so, for instance, Old Testament books like Isaiah... Uh, the books like Jeremiah would be categorized as major prophets because uh, take, for instance, Isaiah. Isaiah is a long book. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Jeremiah, not too far behind with 52. Micah, on the other hand, has only seven chapters. Jonah is another minor prophet. Right before the book of Micah, you find Jonah, and Jonah only has four chapters. Now, While there is this major-minor difference of major prophets, minor prophets, the job of these prophets were largely the same. If you remember a couple of weeks back, we were studying out of the book of Isaiah, uh, we said that the job of a prophet was simple. 
Okay, it was, it, it, was, it was not easy, but it was simple in that they were, they were there to essentially call the people of God who were wandering away from God back to the ways of God, right? That's what prophets, that's what their job was. They, they were essentially these megaphones for the people of God who are wandering away from God to say, hey, come on, come back to the ways of God, that's what Isaiah was doing, and that's what we find Micah doing here in today's passage. Now today, through the lens of the prophet Micah, we're going to discover this significant attribute of who God is, and that is the justice of God. And so look with me at Micah chapter 6. We're going to pick up from verse 1. By the way, we went from, if you notice, if you've been tracking along with us in the series, we went from Isaiah 6 to Judges chapter 6, to Micah 6. I did not plan for that. That's just how the Holy Spirit led me during my time of study, okay? Now, uh, but nonetheless, we are looking at Micah 6. Although I got to say, now I feel all this pressure to preach out of the sixth chapter of an Old Testament book next week. I got to keep up that trend, but we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, whether we go to that or not, Micah 6 is where we are today. Micah 6, verse 1, we'll also put the text up here on the screen. You can look along with us that way. It says this, Hear what the Lord says again this is Micah the prophet speaking on behalf of God arise plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel now I just want to pause here for a quick moment I want you to notice right off the bat the justice language that's being used here. Right? Think about the justice system, right? Like the, the language that pro the prophet Micah uses here is in the justice category. He's, he's almost bringing us into a kind of celestial courtroom of sorts, if you will. He says to the people of God, hey, people, plead your case. Let the hills hear your voice. He's saying, prove your innocence before the court of law. Or in this case, before the presence of the Almighty God. Prove your innocence. And then he turns to creation and he declares an indictment of the Lord. And he says, the Lord has an indictment against his people. Justice language. This is justice language to its core. Now, you remember, again, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, this pattern that we've been revisiting throughout the course of this series, right? God calls his people to his ways, but the people decide their ways are better than God's ways, and so they disobey, right? Remember that circle that we talked about? Disobedience is, is what the people of God begin to walk in, and then disaster soon follows, and in their disaster, they cry out to God for help, right? And, 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 and in their distress, they begin to cry out to God for help, and because of their distress and their outcry, God, being gracious and merciful, sends them a deliverer. It sends them deliverance, and God delivers them from their distress. Now, in this moment, Micah is warning the people of that disaster piece that is coming their way. He's talking about this disaster. By the way, the reason why I love prophetic books the reason why I love these prophets is because, number one, you get such a clear picture into the heart and the mind of God. You want to know what God is thinking. You want to know what he feels about a certain issue or topic or a certain, uh, you want to know what, what's on his mind. You go to the prophets. And the other reason why I love the prophets is because what they prophesy actually happened. 
In fact, you go throughout the prophetic books of the major and the minor prophets, you see this actually play out in real time in the historical books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You can actually read them in parallel and say, holy crap, like the prophets were actually real. Like there was judgment and disaster that befell the Israelites. And so you see those accounts in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. But here Micah is saying, guys, Disaster's coming your way if you don't course correct soon, if you don't course correct real quickly. And then he goes on, and in verse 3, he then speaks from God's vantage point. In light of all of that, in light of the pending disaster that's coming because of the people's disobedience, in light of all of that, he says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shechem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, friends, if you're familiar with Old Testament literature, you'll know that these references are pointing to stories in places like the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. In the book of Exodus, we find God, you know the story, right? God delivers the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity, right? God leads them out of Egypt, and he uses Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to do that delivering work. And what God is saying here is, people, don't forget what I did for you back in Egypt, Don't forget how I led you through and through and through every step of the way out of Egyptian captivity, and I brought you freedom. Don't forget about that. In the book of Numbers, we find that the people of God, they are brought out of Egypt now, and they're on their way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where it's going to be prosperous for the people of Israel, and they're going along their way, and they encounter enemy territory that comes by the name of King Balak of Moab. King Balak of Moab saw the Israelites encroaching on their territory, and in fear that the Israelites were going to overtake the Moabites, King Balak says, we can't have this. We can't have the Israelites taking us over. And so what does he do? He calls one of his wicked prophets, Balaam, over. And he says, hey, Balaam, I want you to send a curse on these Israelites. I want you to send a curse so that their journey comes to an end. By the way, again, you can find all of this in in the book of Numbers, like what the prophet is talking about actually happened. And so he's saying, send a curse upon these Israelites so that they will be no more. But God would protect them and cover them by his providential care. And what did he do? He saw them from Shechem all the way across the Jordan River, all the way to Gilgal, without being touched or harmed. And so when Micah is referencing these stories... Stories that would be fresh in the minds of the Israelites. Micah is saying, people of God, don't forget about the goodness of God. Don't forget about how good God has been to you. And oh folks, how often is this our tendency? How often does this need to be a message that we need to hear on a day-to-day basis? Don't forget about the goodness of God. God shows us his goodness, right? Like we, we either, either come on a Sunday morning, we go to a Bible study, we go to our ministries, campus ministries, and, and we're reminded of the goodness of God. Oh, he is good, he is good. He expresses his love and compassion for us. We celebrate all of that. And then the very next day, we live our lives as if we've never even tasted never even touched for a moment the goodness of God. 
how quickly we are to be a people who forget about God's goodness. In so many ways, we are no different than the people that Micah was speaking to here in Micah chapter 6. You see, the people here in Micah 6 struggled and had, a, had an ailment, a, a, a crippling disease. It was, called, it was a spiritual case of amnesia. And that's something that I think a lot of us struggle with. We taste the goodness of God and then boom, we all of a sudden forget we taste the goodness of God, we taste the faithfulness and the favor of God, and then all of a sudden we hit a hardship in the road, we hit a road bump along our way, and then all of a sudden, no, God is no longer good. See, that's what the people in Micah 6 were experiencing. And Micah saying, guys, did you already forget what God has done for you? Right, through Aaron and Miriam and Moses and, and what, what you encountered with King Balak and, 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 uh, and Balaam and all that, did you forget already? It says, don't forget about the goodness of God. Now, if you haven't noticed already, Micah switches back and forth in his mode of person. He's speaking on behalf of God the whole time, right? Like he's a prophet, so he's speaking on on behalf of God the whole time. But if you notice, he moves around the person in his speech quite a bit. And so verses 1 and 2, we find God speaking in the third person, right? God is saying, the Lord has an indictment against his people. That's God speaking in the third person. And then in verses 3 to 5, God is now speaking in first person. Right? Tell me, people, how have I wearied you? What have I done to you? He's speaking in first person. But now in the next couple of verses, in verses 6 and 7, the people begin to speak out to God. This is Micah essentially speaking on behalf of God's people to God. And notice what he says in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So notice here again, church, we come right back to justice language. We come right back to this justice kind of category. What these couple of verses are saying is this. God, what is the payment for my wrongdoing? Isn't that justice 101, right? Like, what is the payment that, that, that I, I am deserving to give? What would be an acceptable recompense for our disobedience, oh God? A burnt offering with calves? A year old? Now, you, you got to understand, to offer up a young calf, a year old, a brand new calf, was a costly Noble game. It wasn't like just like, well, the, you know, the, the runt of the litter type of like, well, we don't want, no, no, the, the first calf, the, the, the young calf was a noble, costly gift. It was one of the most honorable kinds of sacrificial gifts that one can give. And so was it, did, did, did God's justice require a young calf, a year old of a burnt offering? Now look, if, if it wasn't quality that God wanted, maybe, maybe it was quantity. And so does God's justice require thousands of rams or, or ten thousands of rivers of oil? I mean, now this is speaking to the outlandish exuberance, the, the abundance, the excess of one's offering. And so what the, what, what, what the people are saying is, does God's justice require like just this 
this outrageous output of offering, like 10,000 rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Friends, don't miss this. It's moving in progressive order of value, and he's saying, this is the ultimate form of sacrifice. There's nothing higher than giving of my firstborn. And we're not talking about the firstborn of your livestock. We're talking about the firstborn of your bloodline, the firstborn of your family. There was no offering that would have, been, that would have trumped this level of offering. This was the highest order of sacrifice that one could possibly give. And so what the people of God are saying to God is, is this what God's justice would require of me? To give the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. And the answer to all of that is a resounding no. No. That is not what God's justice requires of you. God's justice does not require of you any young calf, a year old, or five months old. God's justice does not require of you thousands of rams or ten thousands or hundred thousands or hundred thousand rivers of oil. It doesn't even require of you the thing that is most valuable to you, your firstborn of your bloodline. Nope. In the next verse, we discover what God's justice requires of us. In verse 8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good? What is good? Now, if you're the type to write in your Bible, like if, you're like if you like to scribble in your Bible, I would suggest you circle that word good or highlight that word good or underline a point, an arrow to it, whatever you need to do. Like just go, just go ahead and, and indicate that word good as a key word for today's passage. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. One more time, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I've heard a lot of pastors and preachers, and I've heard a lot of sermons preach out of this single verse, and they, they like to parse out these three sort of pieces of this part of the passage and, and make a nice, clean three-point sermon, and, and I'm a three-pointer. I'm an orthodox three-pointer preacher, okay? And so, like, I looked at that, and I'm like, man, that's such a nice, like, do justice can be one point, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God, another point, and, and I think often the tendency is this. I think when we do that, we unfortunately parse out the very intention of what God meant here with this passage. I understand those are three separate concepts on paper, but in reality, they are actually the same thing. To do justice is to love kindness, is to walk humbly with your God. To love kindness is to actually exercise justice and is to walk humbly with your God. What does walking humbly with your God look like? It's someone who does justice and loves kindness. And so, friends, today I don't have three points for you. I don't have two. I just have one. I've got one big, massive point that I want to share with you that I think if we get this one point about God's justice, 
If we get this one concept, or get our heads around this one simple notion of God is just, it's going to open up our eyes to the nature and the character of God in entirely new ways. At least that's my open prayer. And so what am I trying to say here? When we say that God is just, here's the one concept that we've got to get our heads around. That God's goodness is louder than his fairness. God's goodness is louder than his fairness. If you take notes down, you need to write this down and you need to tuck this away and archive this. God's goodness is louder than his fairness. When it comes to the justice of God, I need to understand God's goodness is louder than his fairness. When I perceive God to be a just God, I need to understand, I need to filter it through this grid that God's goodness is louder than his fairness. You see, friends, for most of us, when we think about the justice of God, or when we think about justice at all, our tendency is to often equate that with fairness, right? We think justice equals fairness. That's kind of how we process justice. And so when justice is rightly served, we say, well, that's fair. On the other hand, when justice is not properly served, or you know, even on the worst end, when injustices prevail... We say, well, that just seems entirely unfair. It seems unfair that bad things would happen to good people. How is that fair? But now if bad things happen to bad people, well, all is right in the world. That just seems perfectly fair. And so what we do is we take this notion of fairness and we end up attaching it to God. And so when we say that God is just, what we're really saying is, without even knowing, God is fair. Right? God is fair, right? And the problem is, for many of us, we have a hard time reconciling the truth of that statement with the realities of life. Because when push comes to shove, many of you know this, life is not what? Life is not fair, right? Life is not fair. your, Your parents have told you that. Your teachers have told you that. Your friends have told you that. Now your pastor's telling you that. Life is not fair. But you don't need another person to tell you that because you already know that. But can I tell you something that you may not know? Did you know that the Bible actually never claims God to be fair? It doesn't. You can search scripture all you want. The Bible never, the Bible does say that God is just. But the Bible never says that God is fair. God is just entirely in his core But the Bible never claims that God is fair, and that's because the best definition for justice is not fairness. According to Scripture, fairness is not the measurement by which we use to gauge the justice of God. The measure that we use is actually righteousness, or rightness, or goodness. When, we, when the Bible refers to the justice of God, words like righteousness and goodness are used interchangeably and synonymously with the justice of God. And so when the Bible refers to God as just, what the Bible is saying really is not, well, God is fair. No, no, no. The Bible is saying God is good. God is righteous. God is good. That's what the Bible is saying, which is why Micah says in verse 8, he's told you, oh man, what is what? Not fair. 
He has told you, O man, how to get even with God. No, that's not what he says. He didn't say, the Lord has told you how to bring balance in your relationship with God. No, 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 that's not what he says. He, he, doesn't, say, he doesn't say, he has told you, O man, what is fair. No, he says, he has told you, O man, what is what? Good. He's told you, O man, what is good. In the midst of all the injustices Michael was addressing here, he was calling people back not to fairness, but to goodness. Because true justice is goodness at the core. That's what true justice is. It is goodness at the core. You see the statement, God is good, and many of you have even claimed that with your own lips, God is good, is actually you're making a justice statement. You're making a statement about the justice, the just nature of God. But, but we don't always see the goodness of God when we think about the justice of God, do we? Because the other hang-up that a lot of us have when we think about the justice of God is we have this certain picture in our minds when, we, when, we, when the church or the preacher talks about God is just. God, the, the justice of God. Oftentimes, our mind goes to this picture of a kind of a cold, calloused judge who is sitting on a big throne, kind of like ready to drop the hammer on people, on deserving parties, right? When we think about God is just, the justice of God, we think about this, 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 this dispassionate, lacking in all compassion, dispensing out punishment upon deserving parties. That's what we think about when we think about the justice of God. And so a lot of us associate justice with punishment, Right? Like even in, our, even in our own home with our two little boys, right? Like when justice is, is, is exercised from our kids' vantage point, they think punishment is coming. When justice is being served, when fairness is being, is being distributed and lived out, someone's being punished and someone's being rewarded, right? And so when we think about the justice of God, we don't want to be thinking about God as sort of this, sort of this cosmic eternal punisher, enacting uh, justice in the world. No, 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 please, preacher, talk about God as love. I don't want to think about God as a sort of cosmic punisher going around, shooting, you know, like it's like, no, I don't want to think about God. Like, God, I want to think about God as my cosmic teddy bear, warm and fuzzy, just like I love God. When I think about that God, God is love. And friends, hear me, God is love. In fact, next week, we're going to conclude our series by talking about this very core essence of who God is. God is love. But here's the thing. For some of us, the love of God and the justice of God sit on opposite ends of the scale. For some of us, the justice of God and the love of God, we don't know how to, how to reconcile the two in our minds. But would you know that the Bible does not paint a picture of God in that light? The Bible paints a picture of a just God and a loving God who coexist in the same being. The justice of God and the love of God work hand in hand. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, don't make light of the Lord's discipline or his justice. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you or when he corrects you, right? Because the Lord, what, disciplines those whom he loves. The justice of God and the love of God work hand in hand, intimately together. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I would go as far as to say this. He acts justly because he loves so deeply. He acts justly because, not in spite of, but because he loves so deeply. See, God's goodness is louder than his fairness. Friends, if we get that piece, 
you will begin to see life through a whole new filter, a more biblically aligned filter that will help you make sense of some of the injustices that you face in your own life and the injustices that we see around us in our world today. And guys, I, I wish, I so wish we had more time to unpack that a little bit more. And if you wrestle with that, please speak with me. I'd love to process that out with you. But, but I'm not trying to make light of your injustices that you've faced in your life. I'm not trying to make light of, of, of the injustices that we see in our world today. Heck, there are, oh man, as I was preparing this message, my heart was grieved with the kinds of injustices that we see on a day-to-day basis. The kinds of injustices that I sit across the table from many of you and you share your story and you share your life with me and the injustices that you have, to, have had to go through in your life, my heart is grieved by that. And so I'm not trying to minimize or lessen the injustices in our lives. All I'm trying to do is magnify the nature of God. And when God's nature, his goodness is magnified, fairness no longer becomes the measurement by which we see God or we judge God's character. We begin to see God for who he is, a good God. Now, can I just make this one last point before we move into communion? Fairness is a terrible way to measure the justice of God. Fairness is an awful way. It's an awful way to measure the justice of God. You see, fair is you get what you deserve. That's what fair is, right? Fair is you get what you deserve. Uh, my kids and I, we're, we're into, we got a Switch over Christmas, Nintendo Switch, and I probably play more than my kids, to be honest. I, I, you need to pray for me, church. But um, So we're, we're playing, and we're play, we, got, we got Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers, whatever, you know, Super Mario, Super Mario, whatever. I'm from New York. We say Mario, you know. So, so anyway, so we're playing, we're playing, and, you know, like, you know, my, one of my sons, he accidentally pushes the, his brother off the cliff, right? It's like, come on, man, why are you doing that? It's like losing his mind. You see the veins popping out of the 10-year-old, 10-year-old's neck, like, Dang, I, gotta, I, I, I renounce you, devil, like come out of him, right? Like, and he, he's just like riled up. And then the very next, he comes back to life, and then, and then it flips, right? It's like, ha, yeah, you got what you deserve. You push me off, it deserve, you, deserve to, you deserve to die, right? You see, like that's, that's fairness at his court. My kids are like experts in fairness. They, they love fairness. They live for fairness. But fairness is you get what you deserve, Right? Fair is what goes around what comes around. It, it, fair is kind of like karma, which, by the way, is not a Christian concept at all. You don't find karma in Scripture. Karma comes from places like uh, secular religion, things like Hinduism and Buddhism that says what you send out to the universe will eventually come back to you, right? And so when you send out good karma out there, wherever out there is, well, Good karma is going to come back to you. But on the other hand, if you send bad karma, well, quite frankly, don't be surprised if you get hit by a car or like if bad karma comes your way, right? And so it's a spiritualized version of what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. But church, in the Christian faith, we don't believe in karma. We believe in grace. Grace says, you're not going to get what you deserve. 
Instead, Jesus is going to cover that cost and give you something far better. You're not going to get what you deserve. In fact, you're going to get something far better. Grace says you deserve death, but instead, you're offered life. Grace says it doesn't matter what you send out to the universe, what is extended to you eternally is things like hope, life, joy, and peace for all of eternity. Without fail, you are offered this till the end of time. Even for the worst of sinners, Grace says there's a seat at God's table for you. Come on in. We've got a seat for you. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what you've said, who you've been with, what you've thought. Grace says you're all welcomed into the family of God. Now, church, you tell me this morning, how is that fair? How is that fair at all? How is it fair that a perfect, sinless, spotless Messiah would carry the weight of the sin of all of humanity and would die for a hopelessly sinful, rebellious world and offer a human race life. How is that fair? How is it fair that God, our creator, would have to suffer such a grievous loss on our account, the offender? How is that fair that God would need to carry the brunt of that? How is it fair that in spite of our own sin, we come out with the better end of the deal? We're the sinners. We're the offenders. We're the ones who have walked in disobedience. Disaster has come. We cry out in distress. God in his goodness delivers us, and yet we repeat that cycle, rinse and repeat over and over and over again. We are the people who suffer with spiritual amnesia. We're the people who forgot about Egypt, forgot about Shechem to Gilgal. We forgot about all of that. We forgot about all of that. It is our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, and yet we come out of this with the better end of the deal. We didn't have to die on a cross. Though we, every single one of us deserved so much more. We didn't have to die on a cross. Rather, we walk away with the promise of an eternal life and hope with God. How is that fair? We've got to wrestle with that, church. Because here's the truth. The truth is, none of that is fair. It's not. If you were looking at this from a strictly objective standpoint, you would say, none of that, in no category would we claim that any of that is fair. It's completely unfair. But you want to know what else it is? It's good. It's so good. That's why we call this, friends, good news. This right here is the gospel. This is good news. You see, the fact that God is just, hear me, church, the fact that God is just is incredibly good news to you and for me. The fact that God is just, and, and, the, and the place that we see the justice of God so flawlessly portrayed is at the cross of Jesus Christ. For that's where the justice of God was fully served, not on you, not on me, but on his son Jesus. 
justice was indeed served. And out of God's goodness, he extends you and me eternal hope and life in God. Not for the afterlife only, but for the life here and now. You can have hope and walk with God now. That's good news. It's not fair. It's not fair that we get that end of the deal, but it's good.